0: Going to be looking at testifying with the Holy Spirit from John chapter 15, verse 26 to chapter 16, verse 15. So it's going to be a bit of a bit of work. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. Now, in these final hours, Jesus and his disciples, they are on their way to the garden. They've left the upper room. They're on their way to the garden. And he continues to teach important things to them. Last week we were reminded of the hatred of the world toward Jesus and because they are his followers, because we are his followers, the hatred will also be targeted toward us. We don't go out there looking for trouble, looking for enemies, but we are sent into enemy territory to tell them the good news. However mean the attack, we cannot respond in kind but display love by telling them the truth of the gospel, the undiluted truth of the gospel. Now you might be perplexed as to why we are looking across two chapters this morning. Uh, Please understand that these divisions were not in the original text. The original text, written in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew, were just long, no chapters, no verses, long writings and scrolls. But in order to help us find passages a lot quicker, chapters and verses were introduced around about 1550, about 500 uh, years ago. Having said that, not all the chapter and verse divisions have been spot on. Uh, it's argue, arguable. You know, This should, chapter should have finished here, that should have started there and it's so on and so forth. So, there's been discussions about that. So, if I were to make these chapter divisions, I would have done it after verse 25. That, that's me, right? So, the chapter divisions are not inspired. The verses in themselves, the verse divisions are not inspired. Is is the word of God that is inspired and, and the and then we went along just to make it easier to follow, we've introduced that. So I hope you understand that. Now today in the follow up text Jesus continues to expand on this on this topic of 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 the fact that he's going. But reassuring his disciple and reassuring us that until the time he comes back, that we are not alone. He is in us, we are in him through the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about the ministry of the the crucial ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in the power of the Holy Spirit comes this this matter of witnessing of going out, witnessing in his name. So in verses 26 to 27, the the last two verses from chapter 15, we look at this missionary partnership, a missionary partnership. So when the advocate comes, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. When the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, Jesus promises that things will really, really start to happen. For us, of course, this has already happened. The Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. We must also bear witness to the world about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think at times we wish to agree with the, the elder or the, the minister who about two, 300 years ago told William Carey. William Carey uh, wanted to uh, go into the mission field and uh, so he presented his credentials and his plans to... To church and uh, and one of the elders uh, or the pastor there said, "Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, He will do it Himself." Now, I I i, I, I um, in, in part of me says, "Yeah, I agree with you, brother. I don't want to go. Let's just let just let God do it, right? Let let God if He wants to save, let Him do it." But is that what we read in the Scriptures? Here it says, we, we, we can't actually escape the command. It says, you also must testify. You also must testify. The early church understood this and so must we. God can and does do it himself many times but he chooses to reach the lost through his own Peter stood before the Sanhedrin and in Acts chapter 5 verse 32 he says we are witnesses of these of these things we are witnesses of these things and so is the holy spirit can you see the partnership we are witnesses and so is the holy spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus is truly alive. We are witnesses of his birth, life, death, resurrection, the most historically verifiable event of 2,000 years ago. We have been called to tell the story and that is challenging. It's a challenging task, isn't it? Yes, we try and, and train each other into the mechanics of witnesses. These are the steps. And these are important. How to lead someone to Christ with the important things of the truth. But you see, you can know all the mechanics and still not, not do any witnessing. When given the opportunity, what we are called to do is tell others about God and what has happened to us as a result of that encounter, as a result of God in us. That is what an effective witness does. An effective witness tells what happens. We don't want to go into a witness protection scheme, right? Where nobody knows where we are. But I think that's what, unfortunately, many Christians, what's happened to many. We go into a witness protection program. God will protect me because the world is mean. Yes, it is. But you'll go out there, not camouflage. People need to know. And in, in that task, there is a cost of witnessing. There will be a pushback. That's we've been warned about this. And that's why we fear. That's why it's scary. But in our witnessing, all, always remember that, that we ourselves cannot convert anyone. Our task is to tell the story. We simply tell it like it is. Now in verses 1 to 4, we cover we need to have realistic expectations. Jesus says, "All this I have told you so that you will not fall away." They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are actually offering a service to God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, some people will believe. And that's exciting. It would be exciting to be part of that process. And it's important that we are honest in our witnessing. Don't just tell a little bit of the story. Tell an honest, full story as you can. Because we don't want to give out false advertising of what it is to be like to be a follower of Christ. If they come to Christ with a fairy tale type of expectation, then we are setting them up for a big disappointment. It's not the true gospel, is it? Much of modern evangelicalism, unfortunately, is is actually setting people up for failure. Big churches, big front doors, but the back door is even bigger. And the expression that you might hear is, God wasn't there for me. Really? Oh, you poor thing. They need to expect trials, tribulations. Be open, be honest, so they're better prepared with what comes. And Jesus warns his disciples that they... What, what's the reason? So, they, they may not fall away. The word fall away is, um, or stumble, um, it's, it's, the original word is skandalizo, which, uh, which, from which we get our word for scandal. Uh, it's a picture, actually, of a trap. It's a trap that, that would sometimes set for animals, that when he touches it, it springs. Jesus didn't want the world's hatred to be a trigger, to be a snare and to snare people in the trap of disillusionment, disappointment. That's why he warned them. Now, the sufferings that Jesus speaks of here are not the sufferings that his disciples, his followers, that's all of us, share in common with the rest of the world. Every day, people lose a job. Every day, they might lose a business, a spouse, a child. Every day, people go broke. So, we share that. Christians aren't immune to that in that sense. That happens to everybody. Now, the sufferings here are particular to those who faithfully seek to be His ambassadors Who go out representing him in a world that will be hostile. And so he mentions two likely scenarios that were going to occur in his day at that time. The first one was that they were going to get kicked out of the synagogues. You need to understand that for a for a Jewish person the synagogue to, to be part of the synagogue was no small thing. All social, economic. Religious life, the synagogue was a center of the community. It happened there. And as followers of Christ, they would be viewed by their former friends as worse than actually pagans. They would be most likely lose their jobs, be disowned by their families, and even lose the privilege of an honorable burial. Many times they actually made sure that this happened sooner rather than later, which brings us to the second point about getting killed. And this was certainly the case with the disciples and the early church, and Christians ever since. Not be, that they weren't killed because they were evil people, but because they were followers of Christ. And and for us, I think it's it's a It's a big mistake to think that martyrdom is something that only happened years and years ago. It's it's happening now. 26 million people, Christians, have been killed for their faith in the last century. And it's still happening. We just don't hear about it. The news that appears on social media and the news is very, 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 very selective. But it's happening. What's more disturbing is that those who were persecuting the followers of Jesus actually thought that they were offering the persecution was part of their act of worship to God. What it says in verse 2. Now, you think that That's pretty strange. How can you possibly think that? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul acknowledged this in uh, Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11. This is what he said. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, which is exactly what happened when Stephen was stoned to death. And through the centuries, many who have persecuted Christians believe that they were serving God, their God. truth is that they neither served him nor knew him, which is what he's saying in verse 3. Now, at times... At times, God takes his people from this world, not through persecution, but through sickness, through accidents, for whatever means, and that is bewildering to us. We cannot understand why God would do that. Especially when these people were so talented, so full of enthusiasm, such brilliant minds, so gifted in so many different ways and and yet God takes them, as far as we're concerned, way before time, way before time. This is what happened to Nabil Qureshi, who grew up in a Muslim family, converted after many, many years of faithful witnessing and and friendship by a Christian, such an able witness and yet died of cancer only last year. Amazing ministry. Before that, uh, we, we, there are many names but uh, another one is the story of William Borden. William Borden was brilliant mind. Uh, he was preparing for missionary service to the Muslim world. He he was born into a very privileged, uh, very wealthy family. But he poured his wealth into missions. He poured his wealth into missions. And uh, he received, uh, part of his privilege, where he received the best education at Yale and then at Princeton. Fabulous mind. And then went to Egypt. Almost immediately when he got there, he contracted cerebral meningitis. And we're probably thinking, his parents, his family probably thinking, what a waste, what a waste. And yet his reply on his dying bed was, his dying testimony was, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. You've heard those words before, right? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Our values are very very skewed one way or another, aren't they? But would you stand in the way of your child, your grandchild being called to to go in a dangerous place in the name of Christ? Would you stand in the way? Or will you sit with them and pray with them and say, you know what this means, right? It's, it's real, it's real. It's, it has been real for thousands of years. This is what it means. May God give us the strength and the wisdom to deal when the time comes. Maybe He's even calling one of us here right now to go. Beyond the grief, verses 4 to 7, beyond the grief, Jesus said, I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief. Jesus certainly spoke many things already about his own coming, suffering and death and then his resurrection. But but now he, he speaks of his disciples' own future suffering because things were about to heat up. They were about to change dramatically. Moreover, up until this, this night, he had taken the brunt of the world's hatred. The world's hatred was directed against him. He was, the, as it were, the lightning rod. But now it's going to be their turn. They're going to have to face the music. It seems somewhat strange that Jesus here is rebuking his disciples for not asking a question that was already raised by Peter in chapter 13, verse 36. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So why is Jesus saying, nobody asked me when they in fact had asked him? Or is there something different about this time? Jesus knows what they're feeling. Jesus knows every heart. He knows what is in your mind, your thoughts, even, and this was no exception. What he is doing is that he is dealing with the grief that has blinded their perspective on things eternal, on the bigger picture. And therefore, Their grief, they were so immersed in their grief that it was not honouring to God. Donald Carson explains this by telling the story of a little boy who is uh, disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting when the boy and his dad had already planned to go fishing that day. The boy says, oh, dad, where are you going? But he really isn't interested in where his dad is going as much as he's focused on his own disappointment at not going fishing. You understand the scenario? So although the disciples have asked about where Jesus was going, they were really just self-absorbed in their own loss at his leaving them. They didn't rejoice in the fact that the Lord was returning to the right hand of the Father to reign in glory. They weren't rejoicing at that. And they didn't mourn at the fact that He He told He was telling them that He was going to be tortured and suffered and, and killed. They didn't rejoice, they didn't mourn. Because they're still stuck in their, in their, in their grief. And now they certainly didn't appreciate or understand the tremendous power that they're about to receive in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we need to meditate long and hard on this. That even when we grieve and we mourn for things that loss and loved ones, that the... Uh, things that ache in our lives, whether it's an ingrown toenail or whether it's grown to an infection and they have to amputate, it's still focused on, on, on that, isn't it? That's, that's, all our energy seems to go on that rather than the giver of life himself. The Apostle Paul said this light and momentary troubles it's an ingrowed toenail it's light it's an amputation it's light it's death it's light yeah it hurts but it's light how can it be light when it causes so much pain it is light Because it is, in the light of eternity, it is nothing. It is less than nothing. That's why he he could say it is light and momentary troubles. Grieve. That's Jesus' grief. But in the context for a believer, it's a different... Different type of grief, isn't it? Very different. So we need to accept this as, as, as an important truth. At the end of the day, it is not about you. Is it? It's not about you. Don't be immersed in the grief. It's all about me. No, it's not about you. It's about God. In verses 8 to 11, the Spirit convicts. When he comes, um, the new NIV says prove and the, the old NIV says convict and many of the other versions actually have the word convict. He will convict the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. Now, in taking this message to the world, we need to know that there are three conditions in the human heart that are, in, that are impossible for us on human terms, humanly speaking, for us to overcome you don't accept this you're going to be frustrated first of all people are spiritually dead people are spiritually dead where does it say this in the bible that was part of our first reading Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are Disobedient. You, God willing, all of you who are here are not spiritually dead, but the people out there are spiritually dead currently. Without Christ, they are spiritually dead. Secondly, the Bible says they are spiritually blind. Where does it say that? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're dead, they are blind, and thirdly, they're actually held captive by the prisoner, by the enemy. They're prisoners of the enemy. Where does it say this? Timothy 2.26 that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So three things that are, humanly speaking, impossible to overcome. Dead, blind and prisoners. How on earth can human power overcome these things? You can't. Only the Spirit of God can break through that. And we sing, my chains are gone. That's where it comes from, isn't it? Chains are gone. I once was blind. Yeah. Dead, but now alive. Uh, Apart from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we can't convict anybody. We can't make anybody, we can't convert anybody. I hope you understand that. And you try and tell your kids and your grandkids and you share with your workers and you're constantly there and you've, you share the word, that is your task, but you cannot convert. You pray for them, that is your task, that is your responsibility, but only the Holy Spirit can convert. So I know it's fantastic if somebody does come to believe in Christ then the most that you can rejoice in is the fact that God has used you but you yourself have not converted anybody yes a bit of pride but stay keep it humble brother keep it humble because it was God and be proud of the fact that God used you and you obeyed and listened So the, Spirit is, the Spirit's job is to convict on these three things that are, that are mentioned here. The, the first one he says is about sin. Here is The, the sin is actually of refusing to believe, to believe. Most people out there will think that they are good people, not sinners. I've done nothing wrong. You will hear that because why? They compare themselves to other people. They compare themselves to those who are in jail. But few of them compare themselves to Jesus. So, the idea of sin is the thing that God has to convict us of. We tend to regard sin, we we tend to target the sin as the the sin out there is the the outward signs of an inner problem. Adultery, robbery, murder. These are all outward signs. The problem... The, 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 the crux of the problem is actually the sin of unbelief. People say, well, I'll need to clean up my act before I come to Christ, before I come to Jesus. No, come to Jesus and He will clean you up. The other thing that the Holy Spirit will convict is about righteousness. His righteousness is required by his own character, his own holiness. He cannot have anything which is incompatible with his nature and character to come close to him because that is who God is. The only solution for God is to reach down to us and impute us with his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And what happens is that there is an exchange. He takes our sin and imputes it on his account and he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, great verse. When you're sharing with someone, this is an important verse to remember. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Great verse. And about judgment. The third thing that the Holy Spirit will convey is about judgment. Now, you open your eyes and, 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 and you will see two very unpopular themes going, um, the thread of modern Christianity has this, you can see it. Two unpopular themes in modern evangelical circles. One is the need to suffer for the gospel. That is very unpopular. I've mentioned that already. Rather than suffering, modern Christianity is into having a successful, happy life. The other is the certainty of God's judgment. One is two unpopular things. One is suffering and the other one is judgment. We do not want to talk about God's judgment. So rather than support a brother who warns of God's coming judgment on social media, we condemn him. We condemn him. My God is not like that. Oh, really? The point is that judgment will come. Jesus has judged the prince of this world by his death. And meanwhile, the devil continues to lie and deceive until the day of his final Destruction. Final judgment. We need to warn people about that. Let me stress this again. There is no conversion without conviction. And that is where the Spirit of God comes in to to transform an enemy into his friend. It's the power of God. So let's close uh, verses 12 to 15 in bringing glory to Jesus. And, and, and Jesus says here, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. Now, Jesus has much more to say to them. There's not much time left, right? But this is not the time to do so. They're already overwhelmed by what they have heard. Bang, bang, bang. Jesus is bringing the three years of education into a final, final exam. So this is what it means, guys. And And, and Jesus has withheld information from his disciples for their own good. And and this was another manifestation, this is another act of his grace, not to tell them everything they wanted to know. We often wish God would tell us all that he is doing, right? or is about to do. What are you doing, Lord? Please tell me. In his grace, he withholds from us those things that we do not need to know. Perhaps even those things that would only cause us more anguish if we did know them. like the time and hour of our death, for example. Please tell me, Lord, when I'm going to die. Well, it's actually tomorrow, Paul. Okay, then. I'm going to make a few phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think I'm going to sleep tonight, if that was the case? (laughs) Something's... We don't need to know. And, and many of the, the questions that we have, many of the answers that we want, one day we will find out. But God in His grace conceals. Because God is gracious both in what He reveals and in what He conceals. Okay, get that? God is gracious in what He reveals and what He conceals. It is the Spirit's role to bring glory to Jesus. It is our role to bring glory to Jesus. How it works is that Jesus, even as we witness, Jesus receives more glory by the Spirit's ministry in our lives. It has to point to Him. Now Jesus promises to reveal all truth to the Apostles. This does not mean that he will reveal all knowledge. That will make them like God, wouldn't it? If they knew everything about everything. We should also see from our text an example of the fact that God reveals truth to us progressively. Now, I know this is this is dangerous because there are cults out there, the Mormons, JWs and others who have... Um, when you present to them the, the Scriptures and they say they present to you the writings of Joseph Smith and Russell and others, they will say, but this is the latest revelation of God. And they say, because why? Because they believe in progressive revelation. Now, to some extent, there is progressive revelation. But it is important to keep a firm hold on the truth that the definite revelation has been given to us in Scripture. Christian teaching is the teaching God gave through Christ and Christ's apostles. Nothing can be authentic Christianity if it does not agree with this. So when a charlatan gets up on the pulpit and says, God told me this new thing that he's going to do, the end of the world is, I don't know, 2021. And many people follow and believe. Really? It is not for you to know. It's not for you to know. But God will let us know those things that we need to know. He will point us. He will take us to Scripture. He will be consistent with what He's already told us and He will reveal to us as we mature, as we grow those things that we need to know progressively. He knows how to teach us. He knows what we can bear and what we can't. And when it comes to truth there's two sad extremes. One extreme leaves aside any serious study of truth and dismisses it as uh, simply being unspiritual. You're not spiritual enough, brother. You've got to feel it. You've got to experience it. It is all about the feeling and you need to work yourself up in in, in worship. If you want to be considered spiritual, you need to show the the gifts of the Spirit and the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. The other extreme, so that's one extreme of Christianity. The other extreme depreciates and it, it, it doesn't want to Know anything about spontaneous joy and enthusiasm in worship, dismissing it always just being merely emotive reactions. As if the glory we offer Jesus depends solely on how many doctrinal truths we're able to recite or remember. Both extremes are dangerous. You see, Jesus warned the, God warned, he says, they honour honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Bring your heart when you come to church. Bring your head. I know some of you are head people, right? Some of you are heart people. The touchy, feely, the huggy type, Right? We've got both. Some of us are one way or the other. God wants both, your head and your heart. Sometimes we cry, sometimes we laugh. In spirit and in truth, we come before him. We need to forge this truth into our lives until it transforms us and prompts, sometimes even, God forbid, spontaneous praise. Praise be to Jesus. Jesus. That's okay. That's okay. As long as all that we do points to Him. Amen.